0: Knowing God's will for our lives is certainly the focus of a lot of sermons, a lot of books, a lot of discussions going on, really, both in and out of the church today. And that's good. It's good to be honest. With each other and with God and to seek Him, of course, and His guidance always, His His will for our lives. We should always do that. We see that modeled in Scripture time and again. And certainly as we've been working our way through the book of Acts in this sermon series, the Acts of the Apostles, we have on many occasions witnessed the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, and Peter, and Philip, and many others, seeking the will and guidance of God. And consistently, we've seen Him answer and direct their steps all along the way. And we talk about all of that a lot, and that's good. However, realizing God's will in our own lives is more than simply understanding what that will is. There's more to it than that. In fact, there's a second part, and I don't believe that we talk about that second part nearly as much, even though it is as essential to experiencing the fulfillment of His will in our lives as the first. Knowing His will, what He wants us to do, and how He wants us to live is obviously very important and we have his word and we we have the ability to pray and fast and meditate on god on who he is Uh, we can study and meditate on his word and what it says about his will for our lives and when we do that as we commit ourselves to seeking him and reading and studying his word his will for our lives becomes clear because he gave us a promise throughout His word, that when we seek Him, we will find Him. And when we seek His guidance and wisdom, His direction for our lives, He answers us. Uh, Proverbs 8.17 says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Proverbs 2.1-6 says, My son, if you receive my words... And treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, for the Lord gives wisdom. And then in James 1.5 it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. When we seek Him, when we seek His wisdom, when we seek His will, He answers us. That's wonderful news, of course. But the second part to fully realizing His will in our lives, that I believe we struggle with far more than the first, is actually doing His will. Of course, that that seems painfully obvious, because it is. And yet what is obvious or even simple doesn't necessarily equate with what is always easy. Easy. Actually doing God's will, following through with what we know we're supposed to do out of obedience, not necessarily desire, can be difficult for us at times. But that is precisely how we live out the will of God in our lives. We have uh, first have to understand what His will is, of course, but then we have to act on it, right? And again, that sounds like a very simple concept, and it is. However, some of the simplest answers to life's questions can be some of the most challenging realities for us to live out. And so today we're going to talk about why why we sometimes struggle so much in actually doing what we know we're called to do and what it takes to see that through, to intentionally live out God's will for our lives, even though it may be very difficult at times. And we'll be doing that this morning, of course, as we continue our story, picking up the text right where we left off last week at the beginning of Acts chapter 21 with a message entitled, Thy Will Be Done. As we turn there, if you have your Bibles and we'll have it up on the screen just to set the stage for this uh, portion of our story, you'll remember from last week that Paul at Miletus, which is just south of Ephesus um, in Asia Minor, it's modern day Turkey, he called for the elders of the Ephesian church. And after explaining that he was leaving for Jerusalem, he warns them about the fierce wolves that would rise up from among them and and draw the disciples away from the truth by teaching, he's called it twisted things, which is teaching partial gospel, a partial gospel or even a false gospel in order to get well-meaning believers to follow them instead of following Jesus Christ. And not only timely for the church at Ephesus was Paul's warning, but I contend it's very timely for the church today. Uh, and we'll see that happening in churches in the West all of the time in, in this dispensation, in this time period, and certainly across America today in our churches. And so Paul was trying his level best. To impress upon these elders, these Ephesian pastors, the importance of teaching the whole counsel of God. Which is exactly what Jesus himself commanded us to do in his great commission to all who would follow him. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, teach them the whole counsel of God. Don't leave anything out. Don't skip the difficult parts. Don't water it down. Don't make the focus of it on anything other than Jesus Christ and His redemptive work. Not material prosperity or divine health or our own works or not even our own happiness. It doesn't point to anything other than Jesus Christ and His redemptive work. Ultimately, all of those things can be a part of our journey. But at the end of this great story and all throughout it, Jesus Christ is the star. He is the focus. And any other teaching, any pastor, any evangelist, anyone or anything that takes our focus off of Jesus Christ has the potential to be a wolf among us. Someone that draws our attention away from Jesus Christ and onto ourselves or someone else or something else. And as we continue in our story then this morning, we actually see this temptation to focus on something other than doing the will of God, presenting itself to Paul at times even in very spiritual ways. And his response to that is quite instructive in how to carry out God's will even when that can be really difficult to do. So let's read it together now as Paul leaves the Ephesian pastors. He's continuing on his journey toward Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21 starting on verse 1. And when when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So, Paul gets on board uh, this ship and sails from Miletus to Patara by way of coasts and roads. And up to this point, they're hugging the shoreline in what was called a coasting vessel. All right, These were smaller ships that were neither large enough or strong enough to sail into open seas. So, they would stay fairly close to the shoreline, all the way to Patara, uh, before getting onto another ship, a larger ship, and sailing onto Tyre. So, you know, he's, he had been in Ephesus here for three years, uh, and now he was down in Miletus meeting with the Ephesian pastors, and he sails by way of coast, this little uh, Greek isle here. Remember, all of this is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He sails by coast, then he goes by way of roads, um, and then he goes up here to Patara, right there. Okay? And, and then later we'll see he gets on the, the larger ship, and he sails all the way out here. Here's Cyprus. This says we keep Cyprus on the left out into the open sea all the way down to Tyre, which is in the area of Phoenicia. Okay? All of the little Greek islands, by the way, I guess before we leave the map, I should mention were very significant places uh, in the ancient world. Two weeks ago, um, we were talking about this. When Paul um, was heading to Miletus, he went to Heos. It's spelled C-H-I-O-S. That's pronounced Heos um, there. That's the birthplace of Homer, uh, interestingly enough. And then past Ephesus, he went to Psalmist, um, just south and east of Heos. That's the birthplace of uh, Pythagoras, who's the famous mathematician who is known for discovering the Pythagorean theorem. And now we see Paul going through Kos, which housed one of the most prestigious medical schools in the entire ancient world. Um, In fact, it was founded by Hippocrates, which is where we get the name Hippocratic Oath. And then Paul goes on to Rhodes, which was the home of one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. There was this nearly 100-foot tall uh, statue of a Greek titan god, the son of Helios. And so Paul's visiting all of these really amazing places where it could have been very tempting uh, to stay in any one of them and uh, experience those cities to the fullest. And certainly the people in those cities needed the gospel as much as anyone, right? So why not justify staying in one of these very desirable locations, these beautiful Greek islands, to continue his ministry and live out his life? Why not just stay? Well, because Paul is more interested in doing God's will which we know from chapter 20, verse 22, was for him to continue on to Jerusalem. You'll remember Paul telling the Ephesian elders, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Alright, that word constrained is the ancient Greek word deo. It means bound. Paul was bound by the Spirit to follow the will of God for his own life. And so he continues on to Petara, past all of these beautiful islands, where he now needs to get on a larger ship to make the journey to Tyre across open seas. And so he boards a seagoing vessel. It's loaded with cargo uh, so he can finish that leg of his journey. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, This is an interesting development, and it's a significant verse that we don't want to overlook, because it says that the disciples were telling Paul, through the Spirit, not to go on to Jerusalem. And yet, as mentioned in chapter 20, verse 22, Paul makes it clear that he's bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Earlier in chapter 19, verse 21, Luke says that Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. And we'll see later in our text today, it was clearly the will of the Father for Paul to go to Jerusalem. So what's the deal? Was the Holy Spirit confused? Of course not. Paul teaches us in his first biblical letter to the Corinthians that the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. And then he says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. 1 Corinthians 14, 32 and 33. The Holy Spirit was not confused. But what Paul's saying here is, even though someone may prophesy, they still have control over themselves when they deliver and give the interpretation of that prophecy. And so, although there has been... No small disagreement, by the way, amongst scholars about where the error comes in in this prophecy as it's given, whether in the prophecy itself or in its interpretation. There isn't a lot of disagreement that there was error in the message. And either way, the conflicting message was clearly a human error, not by the Spirit of God, which is precisely why Paul warns the church, both in 1 Corinthians 14 and then again in 1 Thessalonians 5, to test all prophecy that is given. Okay, you understand that when someone, even a church person that we know and love, gives a prophetic word, that doesn't mean it's right. Right? Paul says, Test all prophecy. And he obviously takes his own instruction here because he's not dissuaded from his mission to get to Jerusalem in the least, in spite of uh, those urging him to do otherwise. Which brings us to the first point in our outline concerning God's will. We obey his uh, will because He commands it. We obey God's will simply because He commands it. When Jesus was teaching His disciples how to pray, He said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, 9, and 10. We're supposed to pray for God's will to be accomplished on this earth just as it is in heaven. Now, how exactly is that to be accomplished? How is God's will to be done here on earth? Through us. That's the answer, of course, through the church, through the body of Christ. We're the ones tasked with doing the will of the Father. And, of course, this is one of the most basic principles of the Christian life. And yet, it is also for many of us, I believe, our greatest struggle. Obeying God's commands. In John 14, 5, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is as simple as that, and yet simultaneously it is one of the greatest challenges to living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knew what God's will was. The Spirit had communicated that to him time and again. The challenge after that was in obeying that will, and as we can see in our story today, resistance to carrying out His will in our lives can come even from well-meaning sources. Paul could have stayed in any number of beautiful, prosperous cities that he traveled through and continued spreading the gospel, doing good things. He could have avoided what was awaiting him in Jerusalem. And not only did he have every opportunity in his travels to steer clear of Jerusalem, he was encouraged to do so by other disciples his friends and companions, those who clearly loved him very dearly. But Paul understood that when God gives a command, you submit your life to that command. Because anything else, even seemingly good things that come our way, if they're contrary to the command of God in our lives and we follow that path, that will land us squarely outside of the will of God. And yet, this is exactly where some believers spend the bulk of their lives doing what seems to be great things for God that are approved of by others around them and yet I believe they're living outside of the will of God. And how do I know that? Well, first of all, because I've not only experienced that in my own life for a long time, but I've counseled with many people over the past 20 years of pastoral ministry who have said much of the same thing. If God has called you uh, to the mission field what are you doing to get to the mission field? If if God has called you to lead a Bible study or to teach a small group ministry, what are you doing to see that realized in your life? If God has called you to leave behind a comfortable career or a thriving business to pursue a calling in your life, what are you doing toward that end? If He's commanded you to talk to your neighbor or a co-worker or a boss or a schoolmate about Jesus Christ... Why haven't you done that yet? I had to answer some questions just like these several years ago in my own life. And answering them honestly exposed some areas in my, in my own heart that I was ashamed of, frankly. Pride and fear and idolatry, all dressed up as a hard-working, responsible business owner. And when I finally decided to obey the will of God for my life, there were consequences very real and at times very difficult to navigate consequences. And I know that I reference that period of time in our journey often uh, when we sold everything and moved to Alaska and entered the ministry full time. But it was a deeply profound period in our lives. And I've learned and am still learning so much from it. And that story's in our book, by the way. You can read it in the book, so I won't talk about it anymore now. But please understand... Not everyone who owns a business or is successful in their career is called to leave and do something else. That's not at all what I'm trying to say. What I'm attempting to address here is the struggle that I believe many Christians refuse to face, which is knowing what God has called us to do. He's called us to something, to some ministry, or to minister to someone specifically. ...or to to swallow our pride and repair a relationship that has been damaged... ...or to speak the truth in a potentially hostile environment at work or at school. Whatever it is, we know that God has called us to something and we're avoiding it. And so we continue to live on the periphery, on the the outside of His perfect will for us... in, ...in deference to what is comfortable or safe or predictable. And I'm telling you from my own experience and countless others who I've counseled with who have confirmed this truth to me over the years. You will never fully realize the fulfillment of a spirit-led, gospel-centered, purposeful life that I believe we all long for, whether we realize it or not, until you obey the calling and command of God that you know that He's given you. No matter how good you live your life, no matter how much purpose and compassion and willingness there seems to be there, your life will always fall short of its potential until you're completely submitted to God's will. And that will require courage and commitment and sacrifice, but there are no shortcuts on the path to true fulfillment in this life. There's no way to get there outside of total obedience to the will of God. We know that because He commands it for every believer, every one of His followers. And we saw that earlier in Matthew 28. Okay, we obey His will simply because He commands it. Alright, let's keep moving in our story now at verse 5. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Then kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Okay, so from Tyre, uh, Paul and his traveling companions head due south to Ptolemaeus and then south again to uh, Caesarea. And so you can see he's in Tyre. He goes directly south to Ptolemaeus and then down to uh, Caesarea. So he's getting close to Jerusalem at this point. All right, and they end up at Philip's house. Uh, This is the same Philip who was appointed a deacon by the elders in the church in Jerusalem over 20 years earlier, which we saw back in chapter 6. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 9. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Okay, so there are a lot of people prophesying to Paul about the hardship that he's headed for. First, we saw those at Tyre prophesying. We don't know what specific prophecies that Philip's daughters may or may not have given to Paul. It doesn't say, but Luke tells us that they all prophesied. And interestingly enough, uh, just as a side note, We now know that at least three of Philip's daughters lived well into their 90s and became very significant sources of information for the early church fathers who were later researching everything that had taken place in the apostolic church. Both historians, Papias and Eusebius, mentioned Philip's daughters in their writings, they said they provided them with significant amounts of information for their own writings concerning the early church, which is just kind of an interesting fact. And then Agabus came down from Judea, and he acts out this prophecy for Paul, which seems a bit out of place. As we're reading through Acts, it seems like a random thing, but uh, in the Old Testament, this was common with the prophets. They would often act out the truths and plans of God in dramatic fashion as a powerful testimony about who God was and what He was doing or what He was about to do. Really not that uh, different from what we do today when we take communion or when we water baptize. We're acting out in in a very dramatic fashion the power and supernatural atoning work of Christ and in baptism the cleansing, restoration and salvation that He gives us uh, by grace through faith in Him. And so Agabus is simply doing what had been done in a long line of prophets throughout the ages. And also, by the way, this is the same Agabus who we heard from earlier in chapter 11 when he prophesied about a coming famine which came true. All right, so his prophecy has been tested in the past. So this is all confirmation and warning for Paul of that which the Spirit of God has already told him. And yet Paul still doesn't know the outcome. Right? He doesn't know the full extent of what God has planned for him. Remember back in chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, Paul said, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. That sounds like fun. So these latest prophecies confirm and warn Paul, really, about how much of what uh, he already knows is going to happen without giving him the entire plan of God. And yet, as Paul well knows, we're required to do His will even when we don't know His plan. Okay, we're required to do God's will even when we don't know His plan. That's the second point in our outline. Even though Paul doesn't know the entirety of God's plan, he submits to God's will. And by the way, the warnings from the Holy Spirit were intended to prepare Paul, not to stop him. I used to think it was strange that God was continually warning Paul about what was coming, as if to say, you'd better think twice about this, while at the same time calling him to go there. But the warnings were intended to prepare him, not to stop him. This was actually God's grace in preparing Paul for the trials ahead. And yet, in much of our church culture today, We've convinced ourselves that anything that could possibly cause hardship in our lives couldn't possibly be from God, which sounds really great, except that it doesn't bear out in Scripture. Sometimes we're called to a difficult walk, and in His grace, God will often warn us of tough times that are coming, not so we'll turn and run the other direction but to prepare us for what lies ahead, particularly when we don't know everything that lies ahead. Sometimes people lose their jobs for the sake of the gospel, even though they know that if they speak out about Jesus Christ, they'll be fired, not knowing what job may be available for them later. They choose to speak the truth, and they lose their job. Some people are bypassed for promotions at work because they're outspoken Christians. There are many uh, recent uh, stories about students being suspended and even threatened with expulsion from school for sharing their testimony or bringing their Bible to school with them. Uh, We're currently, this church, supporting three American missionaries in Egypt. One of them is a single, blonde-haired, blue-eyed young woman in an environment that is very dangerous for her where she sticks out like a sore thumb. And I've talked to Lauren. Many of you have met her many times about her work there in Egypt. She has no idea what may happen to her, particularly with the current political and religious turmoil in that part of the world. Her safety and security are in no way guaranteed. But God called Lauren to Egypt. And not knowing what the future holds, she chose to go. Why? Because she chose to be obedient to his will, not knowing, even not knowing what lies ahead of her. And this is a key for all of us. To obey his will even when we don't know the whole plan. Even when we cannot see the entire picture. And of course, we don't like the unknown. Right? Most of us prefer predictability. I prefer predictability. We like to know what's going to happen next. But we're not promised to always know what's going to happen next. What we are promised is to have what we need when we need it to remain faithful to His will. 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And this of course is one of the most misapplied scriptures in all of the Bible as people will often quote this to mean that God will never allow anything so terrible to happen to us that we can't handle it. That we won't be emotionally tested beyond our ability to cope. Well, tell that to the Parents, Christian parents, who lose a small child to an accident or to disease. Tell that to those who are being murdered for their faith relentlessly in other parts of the world today. We're not promised a problem-free life. What that passage means is that we'll never be put in a situation by God where our only option is to sin. God will always give us what we need, when we need it, to be able to remain in His will, not necessarily ours, no matter how difficult our lives or circumstances may become. And honestly, it's high time that we accept the fact that we can't always know the future when God calls us out into the unknown. The plan is not always predictable. In fact, I've found it to rarely be predictable. But it is time for the church in mass, to accept the call of God on our lives as individuals and as a community of faith and begin to follow the gospel of Jesus Christ to be expressed through our lives to such a degree that our witness would be undeniably evident to all that we encounter, even if that means at times giving up comfort and security and predictability for the unknown. This is what Paul modeled for us. And we see God preparing Paul here repeatedly for what is coming, even though he doesn't know exactly what that is. And as unsettling as that must have been, it had to have been, Paul remains faithful to God's will, even though he doesn't know the entire plan. Okay, Let's finish our text for today, starting at uh, verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Okay, so Luke, who's writing this, admits that when Agabus gives his prophecy, his warning to Paul, that Luke and the others begin pleading with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Don't do what we know God called you to do. These are the same people who have been traveling with Paul, who are heavily invested in his life and ministry, who certainly understand Paul's heart and resolve to do the will of the Father. And these same people are begging him not to do exactly what they know is God's will for Paul to do. It's it's not unlike the wife and the children that would plead with their father and husband not to go off to war. Uh, even though he had enlisted in the army and had been called to the front lines, knowing it's his duty, a commitment that he's made and he must honor, the family still pleads with him not to go. Why? It's not because they hate the one that's sending him. It's because they love the one that must now leave them. And this is precisely what's happening with Paul and his companions. And it leads us to our third and final point in our outline this morning. We have to do his will even when it's not what we desire. And this is, this is the tough one. And I just want to tell you, it's okay to not always desire whatever God's specific will for us is in any given moment. It's okay to not desire that as long as we remain obedient to carry out His will anyway. My six-year-old daughter wants to eat chocolate at 8 o'clock at night even though she's well aware that she's not permitted to eat chocolate at 8 o'clock at night. But sometimes she asks us for chocolate at 8 o'clock at night, just before bedtime, despite the fact that we've explained to her roughly, I don't know, 10,000 times, that it's not good for her to eat chocolate at that time of night, because it keeps her awake for hours, and then no one in the house is able to get to sleep, right? And she knows that, but she still desires to have chocolate, at 8 o'clock at night. And what I often tell her is, honey, it's okay for you to want chocolate at 8 o'clock at night. It's not okay for you to eat chocolate at 8 o'clock at night. You see the difference? Unless she's at grandma's house and then the rules don't apply. (laughs) The desire is understandable, but disobedience is unacceptable. And so it is with God. He understands us better than we understand ourselves. But He also knows what's best and what's right, even when we don't. And so our responsibility is to do His will, even when it's not what we desire. And maybe the most poignant example of this scripture, of this in-scripture, is Jesus Himself just before His own death that horrendously brutal and yet profoundly beautiful sacrifice that He made for all of us that God had ordained long before which was imminent at this passage for the Christ. And as He knelt down there on the Mount of Olives simultaneously knowing the Father's will and yet feeling the extreme tension within Himself because what He desired in that moment wasn't the same as what God had planned. And in those agonizing moments he knelt down and he prayed this prayer father if you're willing remove this cup from me nevertheless not my will but yours be done he prayed not my will not my desire not what i want but what your will requires Listen guys, God certainly understands when your desire is different than His and He can handle that. It is perfectly okay for us to express that to Him. But in the end, we still must do His will even when it's not what we desire. And I think this is perhaps the most difficult aspect concerning God's will in our lives for many of us to overcome. I personally believe that it is very common for Christians to choose their will, their desire, over God's will. And we even say things, we even pray things like, God, make your will my will, as if that is somehow the key to living a life of obedience to God, getting our wills to be the same. But Jesus didn't say, Father, make your will my will. Help me to want what you want. No, Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And when he taught the disciples how to pray, he didn't say, your kingdom come. Our will become like yours as it is in heaven. No, he said, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Desire is understandable, but disobedience is unacceptable if we want to live in God's will. And I believe that very often we know what His will is for us, but we want what we desire more than we want His will expressed in our lives. In fact, in popular culture today, and this is my opinion, but I believe that much of our behavior is largely based on how we feel rather than what we know. Uh, Again, my opinion is that most people know what is right and what is wrong. Even those outside the church, I'm convinced that even unbelievers know within themselves right from wrong. I know there are exceptions to everything, but my personal belief is that on the whole, most people know right from wrong. But because we're more interested in doing what feels good to us, rather than what we know is right, our society is constantly trying to redefine right and wrong. It has become somewhat of a moving target over the past few decades as relativism and postmodernist thinking have taken a hold of the collective conscience of western society however no matter how hard we try to redefine what God clearly defined from the creation of the world the word of God remains the anchor point of truth for all mankind throughout the ages and that does not change and just as there is a clear difference between right and wrong there's a clear difference between feelings and obedience feelings are fickle they will betray you. I, I, I cannot begin to tell you how many people have described to me the illicit affairs that destroyed their marriages and families that started with a feeling. They knew what they were doing was wrong, and yet they chose to follow their own desire instead. The vast majority of sin and struggle in our lives is a result of choosing feelings over obedience. Feelings can betray us. Obedience to God's will, to God's word, however, is always the right thing to do. And it's not that feelings don't matter, by the way. They they do matter. But our feelings must submit to our obedience. Just as Jesus modeled for us before going to the cross, and Paul modeled for us before going to Jerusalem... feelings must submit to our obedience. Again, in verses 13 and 14, Luke describes the scene. They're all weeping and begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Paul's feelings were to be with his friends. I'm sure he didn't want to go to Jerusalem to be tortured and killed. And likewise, Their feelings for Paul was for him to stay to the point that they're all openly weeping. These were overwhelming feelings that were contrary to God's will for Paul, which was to leave them and go to Jerusalem. But Paul holds his feelings in submission to obedience, and he expresses that directly in verse 13 when he says, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then we see his friends in turn, and I think this is beautiful, they submit their own feelings to the will of God. In verse 14, Luke says, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. In other words, since his will and our will didn't become the same thing, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Okay, desires that don't always fall in line with God's will are understandable. But disobedience to His will is unacceptable if we want His best to be accomplished in us and through us. We have to do His will, even when it's not what we desire. And so I think we need to retrain our hearts and our brains through the years of prosperity gospel and feel-good theology that have indoctrinated much of the church today into believing that anything that challenges us that stretches us anything that's hard for us is not from God we have to divorce that false doctrine from our beliefs and accept that yes absolutely God wants to give us good gifts without question Matthew 7 9 through 11 Jesus said which one of you if he asked if a son asked him for bread we'll give him a stone or if he asked for a fish we'll give him a serpent If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more of your Father who is in heaven will give good things to those who ask Him? Of course He wants to bless us. And He does and He will. God cares about every hair on your head. And if you don't have hairs on your head, He cares about the rest of you. He cares intensely about us. He's concerned with every single concern in our lives. But sometimes what is the very best for us comes by way of struggle and hardship and when he leads us down that path he doesn't leave us or forsake us on that path on the contrary he will always give us exactly what we need when we need it to see us through those difficult times and if we remain faithful in obedience we will come out on the other end of those struggles stronger and more fulfilled than we could have ever been otherwise God is good God is a a good God. He's good when times are good. And He's good when times are not so good. And although our feelings change constantly, He never changes. Which means that His will, that He's commanded us to follow, can always be trusted. Even when we don't always know the entire plan. And yes, even when it's not what we desire. And so, my proposal for this church today is simply that we make the core of Jesus' own prayer the cry of our own hearts. Thy will be done. Let's pray.